Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Do you know anyone who went against their parents' advice, got married and then a few years later wished they hadn't, but tried to prove that they had the perfect marriage? Well, Alison Booth, welcome back. Thank you very much, Jan. It's a pleasure. (laughs) It's such a different book to your last one. But the fact, uh, the title of your book is A Perfect Marriage. And the main character, Sally Lachlan. Well, was she in a perfect marriage? Sally Lachlan certainly hoped she was, and she did her best to try to convince herself she was, in spite of the evidence. The evidence, so certainly, because we start at the very beginning with her husband, Jeff, dead. And a little quote from A Perfect Marriage by Sally. All I wanted was some peace for Charlie and me, but there was no guarantee that that would come easily. Oh, I wonder if there's a touch of guilt there. So, but you better tell us, who is Charlie? Charlie is uh, Sally's daughter, Charlotte, who... Uh, is when the novel, the present time in the novel begins, is in those awkward teenage years. She's 17, um, coming up for the final exams, and she's starting to ask awkward questions about her late father. Yes. Well, um, Sally always wanted Charlie to have a proper live-in father. And uh, she also says from the book, I couldn't bring another child into the world, not with a man like Jeff. So what has Sally always told her daughter Charlie Charlie, about her father? She has told her that he died in unfortunate circumstances, but not the precise circumstances. So she's concealed quite a lot about her father and her marriage and her own involvement in it. She's been living a lie for many years and it's been like she had no understanding that finally this might catch up with her. Um, Charlie's just about to be sent a whole lot of letters and photos from uh, about her father, from her um, step-grandmother. And uh, Sally's very worried about what Charlie will think about these letters. Now, Sally has got a best friend. She's a, a very different career. She's very different looking. She's uh, she's many very different in many ways. But she met uh, Zoe in the most unusual of circumstances. She did indeed. And I'm not sure I'll be able to reveal what they are. But they are the most unlikely uh, pair of friends that I think you could ever meet. But on the other hand, they're united against um, a really strong uh, set of circumstances which have to do with the uh, death of uh, Sally's uh, husband. Yes. And it sort of does come out that, you know, Sally's very much the professional. She um, And she knows how to research. So uh, she's researching battered women. And uh, she, what she finds out in the research papers, because you know she doesn't actually go and ask anybody about it, she researches it. Another quote. Battered women are twice attacked, first by their husbands and then by social workers who say they should have left their husbands. And she reads about social deviance. And uh, 
wonders whether she should be punished for her choice. Oh, now here I'm going to ask um, Alison to actually read from her own book. And it's when it's when uh, Sally and Jeff have gone to visit Great Aunt Grace. And Great Aunt Grace recognises Sally's problems. So this is in the car coming home. What about you, Jeff said. Are you happy with your life? I'm sad about Celia, but other things are okay. What? Charlie and all that. I found it impossible to say what he may have wanted to hear, that I was happy with him. I was unhappy with him, but also suspected one could never hope to be completely content in a relationship. I certainly didn't want to tell him yet about the idea of doing postgraduate work. It seemed that I no longer had the ability to make up my own mind about anything, but waited passively until I was told what to do. Was it fear of what his reaction might be, or was it a lack of character on my part? Mm. Well, over the ten years since Jeff's death, Sally has got on with her life, and she's now met somebody. She's met a biochemist, and she feels completely different about him and look this is such a change of writing in Alison Booth's book A Perfect Marriage because this is as she's a biochemist and she's met Anthony Blake I watch Anthony watching me I'm at the mercy of my biochemistry now isn't this what attraction is I can almost feel the neurotransmitters making connections watch out body here come the monoamines Watch out, body. Dopamine, adrenaline and serotonin are on the loose. <laughs> Never have I actually heard about uh, this attraction in such biological forms. And um, this, this Anthony Blake that uh, Sally's got the hots for, as <laughs> um, he's a geneticist. And, oh, poor Sally, she's worried now also about Charlie, perhaps, getting some violent genes. Oh. Sally has always had nightmares about Charlie. What's, what's her nightmares been about? Her nightmares have been about losing, losing Charlie, um, about the whole world that she's constructed, the possibility that might come shattering down around her. There's a, a sort of metaphor, if you like, in the second nightmare in the book with a glass, glass roof breaking. shattering. Yeah. Um, so it's all to do with her daughter and her parenting and that sort of thing. And on the night that Sally commits to telling Charlie about her father, her nightmares play out. What, what's happened mm. to Charlie? What's, what's happened to Charlie? Oh, Charlie has discovered um, through some overheard conversations and a visit to the library following in her mother's footsteps doing research that... The precise circumstances under which her father died, and she is not only devastated by that, but she's also really angry with her mother. So she doesn't come home. So mm. she's Sally's got a disappeared daughter. She's got um, uh, Anthony Blake, who she's very keen on, but she worries about that he might be just too perfect. And all of this comes to a crunch. She now the book's divided into then and now. Now goes forward in time and then backwards with there's often a connection that links them like geese or something 
How hard was it to write that, Alison? That was really hard, and that's partly why the novel took so many years to get itself written. I wrote it all chronologically to begin with, with flashbacks. And then I cut it up and pushed it around the living room floor and experimented with different orderings. And the one that's published is the one that has that clear structure going Front story going forward in time, back story going backward in time. And you've introduced another character, Helen, to help us with the unveiling of the story. Yes. What does Helen do? Helen is a therapist and Helen basically listens while Sally does or most of the time does not reveal what had happened in the past. And occasionally Helen asks probing questions questions, should I say, because it's always in the singular. Um, And that's how Sally is moving forward in her. Sally, another comment. Two fools, marrying and staying on, and perhaps a third fool for paying for advice from Helen. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But, uh, so look, it's domestic violence is at the centre, but love, loss, friendship and honesty help to heal the hurt. Now, this is such a different book to the last book you wrote when you were in here, um, Alison Booth. That was uh, A Distant Land, and it was in a much further away land than uh, A Perfect Marriage is set. Yes. that? That was set in Sydney and in on the south coast of New South Wales, a beach. And it was at the time of the Vietnam War, the end of Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, so the early 1970s. And I still remember finding out a lot about ASIO from that book. (laughs) Yes, well, I found out a lot about ASIO writing that book. It was a real revelation for me. But Um, this one I learned a lot about how women actually see themselves in a domestic violence situation. And Sally, with all her her professional ability, and she's still very questioning. She's still blaming herself. Now... This book, this book uh, A Perfect Marriage, is published by Red Door Publishing and it's mm. not one that I knew of. And because, oh well, you should explain where A Perfect Marriage is set. A Perfect Marriage is set in, in London, mainly in London, a little bit in Spain, a little bit in the West Country. Um, and this is the first one that I've written which is set outside Australia. And Red Door is a very small British um, publishing company. It's new. It's only been going for, I think, maybe it's just over three years now. Um, and they're absolutely fantastic. I've been delighted with them, um, with their hands-on approach to getting the book out there. They they do it in a very different way. It's kind of like a hybrid, as they say, between yes. self-publishing and a traditional publisher. Yes. So apparently the author pays for the cost of the publishing. Yes, for some of the cost of the publishing. Some of the cost yeah. of the publishing. And I think it's a really neat model. It, um, I'm an economist as well as a novelist, and it's like if, if anyone listening is an economist, it's like a two-part tariff that when you publish with, say, Random House Australia, you get an advance um, and then you get a share of the royalties. And so that that's like a big amount that you get for the um, advance and then a small amount for the royalties. What um, Red Door are doing at 
doing is reversing that, that you pay an upfront payment and then you get a very large share of the royalties. But to make it different from, say, self-publishing, it's very, very hard to get published with them. And somehow they've managed to build up a reputation that people really want to publish with them. So they've got a queue of um, budding authors who want to do that. And it helped, I think, that all of them, all of the um, people working there were formerly employees with the big mm. commercial publishing houses in London. What about editing? Because this is finely edited, this book. There's not, not very many wasted words at all. Well, that's me. So did you actually employ an editor or did you just no, do draft I, after I, draft and use more I, of that bedroom floor? You know, well, <laughs> I, I, um, I like to do a lot of that. I did 27, I oh, think it was, geez. drafts of that book, yes. I'm a bit of a perfectionist in that regard. So the editing was, for them, was reasonably straightforward. Oh, right, which would make it a lot easier to publish. But what about uh, the one thing publishers do do is they help with the getting the book out there, the media. So how do how do Red Door do that? Red Door do that very um, effectively in Britain. Um, in Australia, of course, this book is distributed in Australia. It's a bit more difficult, and I think that. Um, I mean, as they get larger, obviously they're going to build networks, ways of doing it. But um, what I've done is to use the services of a, a Melbourne-based publicist um, who contacted you, actually. Emma, hello. Emma, yes. And um, and she's been fantastic at, at getting it out there. But, but even you have had to do quite a lot of social media work, you know, Twittering and... Yeah, you know, I think all authors have to do that Whether you publish, yeah. you know, with a mainline yeah. publisher or not. Yeah, exactly. So really, oh, well done. Okay, look, Alison Booth, um, her book, A Perfect Marriage by Red Door Publishing, a book about... Domestic violence is at the centre, but love, loss, friendship and honesty help to heal the hurt. Thank you, Alison. Thank well, you. I've got murder, a national and international conspiracies. Peter Cotton's new thriller, Dead Heat, takes us to the brink of national annihilation. So, Peter, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. And now, uh, Dead Heat, we have basically uh, a nuclear arms race and the potential... A nuclear disaster. Yes, um, it 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 begins as a simple murder. It begins as a, uh, a, a essentially as a crime fiction does a body um, with a cop um, ruminating over the cause of this um, this demise. This person's the, the, demise. This person's demise. Well, your cop is in fact Darren Glass, Detective yes. Darren Glass, who's now a repeat character because yes. it was Dead Cat Bounce was the original. Dead Cat Bounce was. Darren's original book, and uh, and now he's got another murder. But it's a uh, dead body. But it's not the person they think it is. That's the first bit of intrigue. That yes, well, it, that's true. Um, it's basically there's a, it's a thriller. Hmm. So um, I suppose that's the the hook that gets people from chapter one into chapter two. But um, that, that's interesting because you've got a domestic situation. But it leads virtually to almost a, a global challenge that is being faced. And we'll work our way through that. But I'm just wondering about what are the prospects of uh, a nuclear sort of scenario? 
if you go back to the days of the Cold War, it was very real. How real is it today, do you think, that threat? Well, let's let's look at a bit of history, um, and the history being um, Australia's quest for the bomb is, is not new, um, and there have been proponents of this quest um, uh, post-World War II um, in Australia. Um, Bob Menzies was a big proponent, and... Uh, Essentially, um, we go back a step from that even, the Americans developed an, uh, an atomic bomb that ended the Second World War um, when they dropped it on Japan, uh, or at least the, the Pacific War. Um, the English, who were a big part of the project that developed that bomb, um, and the Australians, the English thought they'd get their hands on the bomb after the war. The Americans said no, the English came to Australia, tested bombs at Mon in the Montebello Islands and at Maralinga. Australia thought it would get a share of the bomb that the English developed here. The English said no because they got an invite to go to America and Australia was left high and dry, which left Bob Menzies furious. Without a bomb. Poor Bob. Pig iron Bob. But they went as far as to develop a site at Jervis Bay to build a bomb. Well, this is the setting of your book, Jervis yes. Bay. But let's work through. You've got the domestic murder, yes, um, which then will become uh, part of the national threat. But then you've got the dis disaffected bikies teaming up with radicalised Aborigines. And it actually fits with the nuclear scenario that you've painted. But it's interesting, this whole notion of a, a, a potential uprising in the indigenous community well it's it's a it's an uprising it, it basically in my scenario in the northern territory along the road between um the road that leads off to uluru um it's a no-go area in my scenario my it's a it's speculative it's 50 years hence it's um, a situation where the cops have had their nose bloodied when they've gone into Aboriginal communities, um, and uh, and so they, it's a no-go area for them. And it's a it's 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 a bad it's the badlands. It's a lawless area. But the potential for an indigenous uprising, when you consider the, what happened with nuclear uh, testing, I mean, you have basically a race of people that were bombed out of existence well in that in Maralinga and places like that so they were cast off their lands the land was made useless that's basically a declaration of war well the the Maralinga element serves as part of the con continuum of of uh the is is illustrative of the dealings of white Australia with the, its indigenous peoples. The, total the, the lack of yeah. dispossession, lack of respect, lack of humanity, and the reaction is these badlands. Um, part of the scenario that that allows these badlands to come into being is the closure of all of the remote outstations in Western Australia. And uh, that is still on, that is on the political agenda as we speak. Now, what happens to those people? Well, in my scenario, yes, they close the, the outstations and hundreds of people head across to the Badlands. And there's a retaliation. So one would expect, if, you, if you're going to treat people that way, that they retaliate. So there's that level in the novel. Mm. But 
we go further. There's a potential. Well, there is a threat in your book from um, Indonesia. Well, it's it's a common uh, pr- uh, approach, if you like, where. Uh, Two parties, two, two, two nations are in contention. If you want to bloody the nose of your um, opponent across the seas, you foster uh, discontent or you foster those who are discontented within that nation. You help them in what other, whatever plans they're developing to um, create grave discomfort in your en- within your enemy's borders. So the Indonesians are actually working with the disaffected indigenous population and such like, and so we've got a, an escalating scenario. But it goes even further. If motive was all the Indonesians needed, said Stacey, it wouldn't have been on between... It would have been on between us long ago. No, it's got nothing to do with a specific motive and everything to do with China. Because, make no mistakes, this is definitely traceable to some of the true heavyweights in Jakarta, which means it goes all the way to Beijing, the biggest Islamic country in the world, doing the bidding of the richest and biggest country in the world. And they made sure we'd made the connection by leaving obvious identifiers on the poor bastards who did the dirty work here. So now we've got basically a global crisis. Well, we've got a regional crisis. Um, Can I say, David, a global crisis comes in the next novel? But... But you're writing about Donald Trump, are you? <laughs> well, we'll see. But um, but in 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 this scenario, it's strictly regional. It's um, obviously it's quite crucial to Australia's interests that it gets to the bottom of this conspiracy. Um, Australian authorities, Australians' intelligence agencies. It's crucial that they get to the bottom of this conspiracy to. Um, well, to save a big chunk of Australia, dare I say it. Hmm. Well, I mean, how real in many ways, how plausible... I mean, it's not beyond belief, basically. Look, can I say, in terms of uh, plausibility, that, for me, is the key in all of this. You have to build slowly um, your scenario from, um, you know... Your building blocks are very carefully placed. They ha- every element has to be plausible as it leads to the next um, outcome, if you like, for our characters. And in the end, you you well, you start with a murder, and you end with um, this uh, disastrous scenario that um, well, is in prospect. Yeah, the the prospect of, of this sort of. Uh, terrible disaster occurring. So mm. you've put all of those building blocks in place in the novel. Mm. Just um, perhaps to put a bit of perspective on it, your background and your interest in this political arena, therefore, what uh, you've got some... I do. I, I mean... I've, I was a working journalist for years um, and uh, working for the ABC and I've worked for... Most I've written stuff for most um, mainstream publications in Australia as a freelancer, um, and I worked in the federal parliament uh, as a media advisor to uh, federal cabinet ministers, and so my interest in politics is 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 all consuming these days. I must say I'm much more interested in American politics because that's life and death stuff for us, really. Um, but it gives you some inside running. On some of these issues, well, it gives it gives me a, a, a deep background, if you like. Um, the 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 trick is to simplify 
and to make it plausible, make plausible the elements of the plot as it builds. And uh, there can't be non-sequiturs. There can't be... Um, I remember Dash, reading some advice from Dashiell Hammett. When in doubt, have a man walk into the room with a gun. And, I mean, you know, that is a non-sequitur. I can't deal with non-sequiturs like that. I, um, everything has to be sequential, plausible, reasonable. And, it dra I mean, basically, look, make no mistake, in the end, this is an entertainment this is an attempt to entertain. This is an attempt to entertain the reader, um, uh, to to maintain their interest, to basically claw back more of their valuable time, so, so that they continue reading my book to well, the end. Hopefully, in one night, David. In one night, <laughs> it, it took me a little longer than, than one night. But you've got uh, your character, Detective Darren Glass. How important is it to make him vulnerable? Look, the importance of vulnerability in Glass, he, he's a human being. He gets knocked on the head several times. He gets, he gets knocked on the head, gassed. Um. Well, hang on. There's also the shark attack, which we've got to put in because <laughs> we've got global politics, but we also get uh, a shark attack because he's landed in uh, Jarvis Bay. I swung around to face the predator. It came straight at us again, faster this time. When it was a few metres away, it dived and I lifted my hands in a double fist and got ready to whack it, but I didn't get the chance. The beast surfaced and slammed its tail into my chest again, knocking all the air out of me and pushing me under. It rasped my face as it swam past and spun me around and my ears filled with water. My awareness slipped a few gears and as the life jacket raised me to the surface again, I surrendered to my fate and waited to be torn apart. I felt the air on my face seconds passed but nothing happened oh dear so we, we've even got a we've even got a shark attack here so not only is he facing disaffected uh, bikies and people with guns and look it doesn't come easily it does not come easily for darren you've got to put i i had to put him in extreme situations it's the sort of guy he is yes. Well, he, he gets himself and he, he sort of, I'll, I'll investigate a little further and then he finds himself amongst the bikey gang mm. um, or uh, following a path and then there's a gun, the steel barrel at the back of his head, which are very traditional, uh, but also it makes him a vulnerable character. Mm. But he's also then got um, love interests and, and things like this, which make him very human, yeah. plausible, believable. Yes. His love interest is, um, is, comes from the first novel. That's, that's Jean Acheson. Um, Jean actually starts the novel with a, a, news, a short news report from Jayapura um, in West Irian where there is an occupation of the centre of the city. Um, essentially, it's, it's the um, Free West Papua movement in 50 years' time um, have got a huge amount of international support and they have occupied the centre of Jaipura and they're about to be basically kicked out of the centre by um, armed Indonesian troops. Well, this leads us to a question of style because you have the Jaipura uh, sort of blogs, uh, press releases interspersed throughout the story. Yes. And we wonder, as we read, how all this connects. A, 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 a dispatch from Jaipura but a domestic murder, and they seem so uh, discordant. How So the reader is left wondering, how do these fit? 
What are you trying to do here? Well, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm making a promise to the reader, I suppose. I'm making a promise that the strands of this novel will come together and where there is a big picture with hundreds of lives on the line in Jayapura, um, that's our start. Um, the narrative itself, <coughs> excuse me, starts on a beach with the body, as I say. So as, as you ask, how do those two meld? We meld them, um, and it becomes by the middle of the book, it becomes clear um, what the connection is, yeah. and it well, goes beyond that, obviously, as well. Yeah, there's well, there's that element of intrigue for the reader because um, they're left wondering, they're left as they read, thinking, How is this going to be an important element in the Jayapura story? How do the elements fit? And obviously, in that relationship between Darren and Jean, uh, and so he's wanting to know what. Is, has happened to her. Meanwhile, his life is in danger as well. Well, he's he basically, he has not committed to Jean in his head. They live together in Canberra. Um, she's gone off to Jayapura. He has grave doubts about the, the health and longevity of their relationship. But in the end, he, well, when push comes to shove in the shark situation... He has a a, a, a realisation that she's the one. Yeah, well, what do you do when you're faced with loss of life and, and with the end of your life? You know, the sort of flashback type, should I have, should I not have, what uh, sort of decisions should I have made or regrets or, or all of those sorts of things. So it's quite an intriguing um, sort of compilation here of character as well as a narrative thread as well as internet from the domestic to the international so mm. it's, it's quite a mix uh in in that regard but you're launching the book soon we we have a launch tuesday the 31st of july readings in carlton at 6 p.m it's to be launched by mick dodson Ah, which is quite relevant. Mm. Mick, Mick has obviously read the book. Did, did he comment? Mick did comment. Um, Mick said, and I'm quoting here, he said, a page-turner that kept me riveted all the way. I found I needed to remind myself it was a fictional thriller as it was very plausible. I recognise many of the characters in the work. I've met many of them in my lifetime. Oh. Mm. So how threatened should we feel or how worried should we feel about... As as I as I said to you uh, previously, the, the the when I spoke to some Aboriginal leaders early on in this process, they one of them said, "Don't write this book because basically there are people who truly believe this scenario is a real possibility." possibility. The book is Dead Heat. The author Peter Cotton. And it's uh, released by Scribe. Scribe it is. And we have a Canberra relationship too because, Alison, what are you doing with this book in Canberra? Um, it's going to be part of the Canberra Writers' Festival at the end of August. And so, so and uh, Alison is Alison Booth of A Perfect Marriage. Well, that's it from Published or Not this week. Thank you for listening. Don't we have a variety of books we on this program? do indeed.